You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled How the Spiritual World Projects into Physical Existence, The Influence of the Dead. This is Lecture 6, given in Stockholm on the 8th of June, 1913. The first of the subjects chosen for this brief course of lectures is about nature and spirit in the light of spiritual scientific insight. Nature and spirit, that seems to be a contradiction, which will immediately bring to mind all kinds of opposing views and opinions that have been put forward in the world. We know, don't we, that a kind of science has progressively evolved in recent centuries where only nature is said to count, and the point of view is that it is really hardly possible to include the spirit. On the other hand, we see how defenders of the spirit and of spiritual life do make themselves heard in all fields, even today. And we need only look to the utmost extreme on one side, where people said in the 19th century, the brain secretes thoughts the way the liver secretes bile. Anything by way of spirit we perceive in human beings is therefore a purely natural process, and we do not believe in any other kind of spirit. All we have to do is to put this side by side with the many current endeavors to establish a science of the spirit, and we have the two extremes. It is, however, also possible to think differently about the words nature and spirit and refer to Goethe's words, Nature is sin, the intellect's ideas are Satan's, and between them doubt is bred, the mongrel offspring of their monstrous bed. We can thus think of many things that put nature and spirit in opposition, many things that have brought disharmony to human hearts, provoking tempests of battle and strife in the world. On the other hand, there are the words from more recent times, also from Goethe, that the spirit never exists and is active without matter, nor matter without spirit. This is very easy to refute. We merely have to draw attention to the fact that I need only chip a piece of granite from a rock and I have matter without spirit. Refutations of profound words are easily found in the world and we must clearly understand, especially in a spiritual scientific movement, that nothing is easier for the foolish element in the world but to refute the words of the wise seemingly with the greatest justification. For an anthroposophical view, we must go more deeply into these things. What is spirit and what is nature? In the ordinary way, we are in no doubt about it that we encounter nature when we see the plants sprouting from the ground in spring, when we see them unfold. There we see nature alive and active. Nor is there any doubt that we speak of nature with some justification when snowflakes cover the ground in winter 
Both of these things are happening in nature. But have we been involved in what goes on around us with full justification? Just imagine creatures that are much, much smaller than we are, so small that our nails or hair would be as large to them as trees are to us. And imagine that they are able to think. They would describe the hair on our head the way we describe plants rising from the ground. We human beings do not describe single hairs, nor the human head as a soil from which the individual hairs rise, for we know that we cannot find a hair in nature that is an entity in itself. You would need to be so small that you could not take in the hairs as a whole for you to describe a hair by itself. Such a creature might perhaps be able to distinguish individual hairs. It might arrange them in classes and orders according to the site where they grow, a class of left temple hairs, a class of right temple hairs, a class of left forehead hairs, a class of right forehead hairs. They might later give them names to distinguish them further. So there might be a hair science for such small creatures. There is such a science with some justification for other entities. Botany. The earth seen as a whole does indeed bring forth individual plants, just as our head produces hair. Individual plants belong to the earth and are not a particular genus. But in botany they are classified and described without considering that this plant world is a single whole that belongs to the earth, just as our hairs are a single whole with our organism. Nature or the world do not care in the least if people create a botany for themselves, just as people would not care if a tiny, thinking creature were to create its own hair science. Spiritual science does, however, take us even further. It shows that just as you cannot think of a creature, such as a human being, with hairs on his head without a soul, so you cannot consider the earth in any other way but as a whole that has all material, natural things as organs of the earth spirit or the earth soul. Further study of this earth spirit or this earth soul shows in the first place that it differs from the human soul. It is peculiar to the human soul that it presents itself to us as a kind of single whole. It is not like this with the earth spirit to begin with. Ultimately, there is a governing earth spirit, as you know, but the next thing we find in our spiritual study of the earth is a great sum total, an abundance of elemental spirits in great numbers and of many kinds. They are the next level of the earth spirit. We may first of all consider this earth spirit. We find that in the hemisphere where it happens to be summer at a particular time, for instance, these elementals of the earth spirit go through a kind of sleep, and they are awake there when it is winter. Spiritual insight actually shows that elemental spirits go to sleep to the same degree as plants rise from the ground. In winter there is a stirring. The elemental spirits then form ideas, have sentience and feelings in their own way. For the earth, the night of human beings, is summer in the hemisphere where it happens to be summer, and the day of human beings is winter. 
The earth as a whole wakes and sleeps like a human being, but in such a way that one half is always more awake, the other more asleep. Human beings, on the other hand, are organized in such a way that they sleep all together, all at once. That, too, is not quite correct, for it is exactly for human beings the way it is for the earth. When a human being sleeps, it is only the head part which is sleeping, with the other organs all the more awake. But human beings are not made to be aware of this. It is really also the same with the earth, though not entirely so. One hemisphere has more water than the other, and because of this, sleeping and waking is not so different for earth from the sleeping and waking of human beings. We consider human beings to have life and a soul, and we have to do the same with the earth. It is just because we are small creatures relative to the earth that we do not see that it also has life and a soul, but that is also due to our materialistic age. Kepler, for example, who certainly also knew how to think, did still say that he saw the earth as a large organism. He did not have an occult view of the earth, and so he did not know that winter means waking and summer sleeping for the earth. He imagined the earth to be like a huge whale rather than thinking of it as an ensouled creature at a higher level than a human being. He reduced the situation a little, seeing the earth as a whale, and he considered the movement of the hair to be the creature's breathing in and out. Giordano Bruno held the same view. To him the earth was a huge ensouled organism with ebb and flood, its breathing. And Goethe, too, saw the earth as a huge living individual that showed its breathing in and out process in air currents and in the oceans. Yes, people of that earlier, more spiritual time, did still know that we cannot look at the earth in the abstract, theoretical way in which people do today, as if one could describe a hair or a nail all on its own, whereas one should know that these cannot exist without the whole organism, that they have their source and origin in the whole organism. The naturalistic way of looking at this does not get the point. In looking at the world, it is important, and with everything in the world, we must be able to ask ourselves, is that part of a whole, or is it a whole in itself? If you find a human tooth, you must not see it as a single creature, for the tooth only has a real basis if seen as part of the human being. And it is equally absurd to describe a single plant, for it can only be envisaged as a part of the whole earth and the outer body of the earth can only be envisaged with the earth's soul and spirit. And if one doesn't know about the spirit of the earth, if one does not know that this earth is the body of a spirit in the same way as our own body, then one does, of course, look at the earth in the way it is done in mineralogy, geology, botany. There is no awareness behind this that behind everything that is described is the governing spirit of the earth. It is easy to say when I break a piece off a rock that there is no spirit in it. There is no spirit in a piece of tooth, but that piece of tooth cannot be envisaged without the whole human being and the soul and spirit to which it belongs. We have to keep this in mind when we speak of nature and spirit. If we therefore talk about the earth as a natural planet, and do not refer to its soul and spirit, 
This is merely because we are ignoring the spirit, don't want to know about it. Where does the earth exist as a mere natural planet? In botany, geology, astronomy, people would say that it moves in cosmic space. If that were true, it would soon stop moving. It would break down the way the human body does after death, when the spirit has departed. This way of looking at the world has spread. Even human limbs and the whole human being are today described as if they were sheer nature, which means that people are looking at the corpse. For if human beings were the way they are described in physiology, anatomy, and so on, they would have to die on the spot. In physiology one gets sheer fantasy, the same in astronomy, and also in geology with its description of the earth. This is nothing but fantasy. There is no such thing as this purely natural earth. For the fact that the earth is the way it is has its basis down to the smallest piece of rock in that the earth is filled with the earth spirit. There we see what really matters. In looking at the human being it is important to find the starting point, going from the part to the whole, and that we do not remove little bits of the whole. The human being as such is a whole. And when we come to the earth we must consider all of it to be a whole. If we separate nature and its influences from the earth What then is this nature? It is then the product of our fantasies, which actually does not exist at all, but merely presents itself to us as if it were, as if it were, because we are cutting a part off the whole. So we see that it is not a question of describing something most faithfully, but of knowing how a part fits into the whole, or rather grows from the whole. That is how the earth must be regarded, as a whole, not a physical whole, but an entity with a body, an entity that belongs to its spirit. We might also speak of nature and spirit in another way. All we need to do is look at the human being as such. In a way we have something there which appears to justify the terms nature and spirit as opposites. A child is born and all signs of life in the early days appear to be something developed out of the physical out of the infant's whole physical nature. Because of this, people often say that the child was still acting wholly out of his nature and that the spiritual aspect and the soul would only be born from the body later on. At the beginning of life, the human being is more nature, they say. Later he develops more the spirit. But once again, this is nothing but a careless way of looking at things. For there is much spirit in us in the early part of life. It is only that it is there in a much more hidden way than later. Everything that gives the body its forms is active spirit. But it is not the case that we are inwardly active in the spirit and let our powers of memory throw light on it. We truly do know how to have less spirit in us in the early years of childhood than we do in later years. One might perhaps put it in an even more radical way. Someone asked me the other day, what does it mean when a child lives for just a few days and then dies? Occult science shows that such a short life does nevertheless have meaning. 
It is often the case that the spirit which is in this body has been able to develop much, but perhaps there is one thing it has not been able to develop, a really sound way of seeing, for example. Let us assume someone has been an excellent person in one incarnation, but did have poor eyesight. It will happen then that such an individual lives for just a few days in a later incarnation, merely to make up for what was missing in the previous life because of those weak eyes. In this case, we have to add this incarnation to the previous one. People generally very much underestimate the significance of a child's learning powers in those first days. It needs a greater capacity for a child to look into the light than it does for everything you learn in your first term at university. All kinds of objections may be raised here, but if you just think about the subject, you will no doubt see that it is correct. We only see childhood in the right way when we know that at that time the spirit is just as much in the body as we develop the brain, our physiognomy, and so on as it is later on when we are being astute. At a later age, the spirit will have withdrawn a bit more from the body and acts as the more abstract mind and spirit, which is then no longer able, however, to organize the brain. That will have solidified by then. The principle people really like to call spirit later on in life did already exist in the first part of human life, but had something else to do then, being more connected with the forces of nature. We just do not see it, and we therefore say that what is happening there is nature only, and what happens consciously later on is spirit only. This is why people assume natural process in early childhood and the spiritual nature of our thinking, feeling, and doing in later life to be opposites. But the polar opposition lies elsewhere. In infancy, Nature and spirit are closely connected. They interpenetrate, are still friends. Later they go apart, and the spirit and the natural processes proceed more separately. This means that the natural processes are more spiritless, the spirit having been differentiated out from them to be the separate soul of which human beings are so proud. The price we have to pay for this is that the body is more spiritless, Initially, the human being drew spirit from the body so that he might use it more separately for himself. Similar things happened through earth evolution. In very early earth times, the spirit was closely bound up with earth nature and so earth spirit and earth nature worked closely together. Today, earth nature has been as much separated from its spirit as nature is from the soul element in human beings. And just as in the human being it is the spirit which governs thinking, feeling, and doing or willing, so does the earth spirit as a course of history run side by side with the natural process in earth evolution. In the Lemurian age, these were still more closely connected, just as spiritual and nature processes are still more closely allied in infants compared to people in later life. What really matters here? Is it a matter of saying, quote, the spirit develops later in life, 
or in Earth's evolution. No, it was there to begin with, but at the time it directed its activities toward the part that was then separated off, and that hardens, grows woody, and dies off. Because of this, we must also consider a whole that we want to consider not just at a time, nor in its parts. As a child, the human being is not a physical whole on earth. The human being in youth, middle age, old age, and so on, is a whole, and we cannot say that he develops from being natural to being spiritual. No, we must say that in early childhood, nature and spirit were closely bound up with one another in the human being. Later, they grew more separate. This makes the natural principle a bit more dead, a bit less inwardly alive, and the spirit grows more independent. So there has been a process of differentiation in the human being as a whole. That is the right idea. But it is not the case that the spiritual simply develops from the natural. Differentiation occurs. When we speak of nature without the spirit, we are talking of a mere figment of our imagination. Under present physical conditions on earth, no human being could develop into the creature able to think, feel, and will who is so proud of his or her mental and spiritual capacities unless he or she had first separated mind and spirit from natural existence. We have to learn to think in a completely new way about nature and spirit. There is more to come. Let us consider the outward nature of man and woman. If this is done very superficially, the conclusion will be that the woman is closer to nature, forming opinions more directly on the basis of nature, whereas the man has moved away more from nature. Independent thinking lives in him, more of an independent mind and spirit. The materialistic age, where the mind and spirit is seen in a materialistic way, has yielded further reasons for the difference, for instance the weight of the brain. However, when they weighed the brain of the individual who had produced this theory, they found that he had a specially small male brain. So if we consider nature and spirit in this way, even a superficial glance will show that this is not the case. The outward appearance of a woman is, however, more natural in some respect, for in her activity of mind and spirit has not yet separated so much from the bodily principle as is the case with a man. Women are more natural on present-day earth because in them activity of mind and spirit has not yet separated as much from the bodily principle as is the case with men. We should not think of men having greater spirituality than women. It is merely that distilled spirit which leaves matter aside is more in evidence. The female body is more filled with spirit, like that of a child, for instance. The male body has less spirit in it at a later age than it does in youth. We should not, however, speak of male nature or female nature being more natural or more spiritual. Our way of looking at things must change, therefore. It is true to say that in some respect the principle connected with male and female nature stays with us through life. It is not always easy to have to refer to this. 
Why, for example, are there more women than men in the anthroposophical society? Surely this suggests a lack of intellect in anthroposophy? It is fairly easy to give an objective answer to this, but one may easily be misunderstood. The fact that more women come to the anthroposophical society, that is, that they find it easier to make spiritual truths their own, exists because they retain more of the spirituality of nervous system and brain. In men this separates earlier from the bodily principle and so they do not find it so easy to take in the element which speaks to something in them which is neither male nor female, but is above them, the human essence as such. In a single incarnation people are either male or female. In a man the hardened parts are more developed, and the spirit, the temporal transitory spirit, is a bit more distilled out from his general nature. In women, nature and spirit continue to be more connected throughout life, and this makes them more flexible by nature. But the spiritual truths address themselves to something in the human being that has nothing to do with the difference between male and female. For the essence, the entity that moves from one incarnation to another, may be alternating between male and female, albeit men are not always too happy about this. The deepest essence of ourselves has nothing to do with male and female. In the same way, the deepest essence of the phenomena and facts of the world has nothing to do with nature and spirit, for it will take a more spiritual form on one occasion and a more natural one on another. Both are phases in one existence, and life does progress. In human life, activities more of soul and spirit during the day alternate with activities which are more natural for the physical human being during the night. In the universe, spirits have times when they are more natural by nature and other times when they grow more natural, in quotes. This is a rhythm in the universe. Looking at the essential nature of a person, for instance, when he is a man in an incarnation and thus karmically condemned to distill the spirit from the natural, he can say to himself, quote, At present I am karmically destined to distill the spirit from nature, but this must alternate rhythmically in a cycle with being a woman, when I'll be allowed to be more in the natural aspect with my spirit. So I will be granted a pendulum swing toward natural existence again. Close quote. This is how it is with all planets, all wholes, totalities, with all worlds. Where we find something natural, there will be something spiritual that belongs to it. And where we find a spiritual principle, it will have the tendency to separate something off from itself, which will be natural. Nature and spirit are not opposites, but alternating states of a higher principle which is behind them. We have to see, therefore, that when we take the spiritual point of view Many an older term that has been dreadfully misused needs to be corrected. Once we no longer describe mere parts of something, which is really a whole, we will also get a clear understanding of the terms spirit and nature, no longer limiting ourselves by taking a one-sided view. We will realize then that the spirit would be something very weak if nature were inimical to it. 
we shall realize that nature is something which the spirit puts outside of it for a time, like a snail secreting its shell. But the spirit is also able to take nature back into itself and dissolve it in itself again. It then makes it invisible, but has it inside itself, having become a single whole again. If perfect oneness of spirit and nature did exist anywhere, this would mean that where facts are concerned, the spirit has dissolved all the nature that belongs to it. Let us assume someone is forty years old. He has his essential nature and he has his soul, his spirit, of which he is so proud. If we go back to his childhood, it is more a whole, but this means that it presents more in its natural basis. If we go even further back to before his birth, he'll be all spirit. He then still had all spirituality without natural basis, without matter in him. It is a pendulum swing in the world. The essence creates its image in the natural aspect, revealing itself through this. The spirit bears nature within it in order to create an image with the element to which it gives birth within it. But the essence also has the power to take up everything that exists out there in nature into the spirit. And so the spirit can overcome all the images of itself to appear ever more in new transformations, new configurations. This tells us that infinitely many configurations rest within the essence and that the meaning of the world truly lies in there being ever new developments. If we are able to see that spirit and nature belong together, cannot be separated, we come to what really matters in the world. The end of Lecture 6